This morning I'd like to look at a verse found in Psalms 119. Psalms 119 and verse 18. This is a prayer of the psalmist. He says, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. The 119th Psalm is unusual in a number of ways. First of all, it's the longest of all the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. Psalms 119 is the longest. Whenever we get to the 119th Psalm in our Bible reading later on in the year, you'll notice that's the only thing I put on it for that day is Psalms 119. There are 176 verses in Psalms 119. The theme of Psalms 119 is the Word of God. The Word of God is God's revelation to man. The emphasis here is on the Scriptures, and yet the word Scripture itself is not mentioned in Psalms 119. There are a number of synonyms for it. In fact, in the first nine verses of Psalms 119, you'll find eight words, eight synonyms for the Scriptures itself. The word Word is used. God's ways, God's statutes, God's precepts, God's testimonies, God's commandments, God's truth. And the number eight is a significant number in Psalms 119. Eight in the Bible literally means that which is in abundance, and it's also the number of new beginnings. That's illustrated very clearly when the flood took place, and the flood was over, and the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, that Noah and his family came off the ark, and there were eight people in his family. And for those eight people, we have the population that we have today. It was a time of new beginnings. The 119th Psalm has 22 sections to it. There are eight verses in every section. And above each section is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And there's a letter of the Hebrew alphabet above each section, starting with the first letter, and ending with the last letter. This enabled the Jewish people to memorize this 119th Psalm more easily. The Jewish people believed in reading the Scriptures. They were commanded to read them and to take heed to God's Word. I'm not going to tell you they all did it. No more than I'll tell you all of God's people read the Scriptures today and meditate upon them, because they certainly do not. But they were supposed to. And this would enable them to memorize this 119th psalm and to meditate on it. They didn't have, everybody among the Israelites didn't have a copy of the law on that day and a copy of the scriptures to have in their hip pocket, so to speak, to have with them at all times. Today we can have the Bible with us at all times, whether it be in book form or whether it be an app on your phone. I carry the Bible on my phone, and I have it with me wherever I go, and I take advantage of it whenever I'm having to wait in a doctor's office or having to wait anywhere uh, for anything. I usually get it out and try to read from it and search things from it, etc. So I'm living in a very blessed time, very blessed age to have that opportunity to be able to have that kind of access to the Word of God. The Jewish people in that day, and the day I'm talking about, didn't have that opportunity and so to meditate on the Word of God, they had to memorize the Word of God. And they were very good at that. And it was very important for them to have the Word of God and to 
read it when they could and to commit it to memory and to meditate upon it. So this 119th Psalm is unique in a lot of different ways. Uh, there's 172 short prayers in this Psalm of 176 verses. Again, the theme is the Word of God and all the benefits of the Word of God. Somebody said, Brother Lawrence, can you give me one good reason why I need to read the Word of God? And I can give you 172 in the 119th Psalm. There's 172 good reasons in the 119th Psalm why you need to be reading the Word of God. It covers life's experiences in the 119th Psalm. It's almost like it's a Bible within the Bible. You know, when you read the 119th Psalm, you're going to cover a multitude of subjects that relate to you and your life and what you go through on a daily basis. This is a very, very important psalm for the reasons I've already given to you. Most people believe that David is the author of this psalm. Well, the writer of this psalm, may I say. Uh, the author, of course, is God. As you read this psalm, you will find that the Lord is mentioned in all 176 verses of this psalm. And in 171 out of the 176 verses of this psalm, you will find, again, a synonym for the Word of God. There's only five verses in 176. doesn't have a reference to the Word of God in one way or the other. And of course, this goes along with our opening verse today on our Bible reading of Psalms 1-1. Again, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor seateth in the seat of the scornful. You got the ungodly, you got the sinners, and you got the scornful. And they're all out there. If you're not careful, they can have an influence in your life. But his delight is in the law of God. Now, what's our text say? Open thou mine eyes, I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. The word law has reference here to the scriptures in general. Sometimes the word law has reference to the first five books of Moses. We call it Moses' law. But that word law is used in a broad sense in the scriptures to have reference to the word of God. But his delight shall be in the law of God. And in it doth he meditate day and night. Meditation is an important part of Bible study. It's one of the commandments Paul gave Timothy. First Timothy chapter 3, he's instructed, I believe chapter 4, rather, he's instructed to meditate in God's word. His prompting might appear unto all. So meditation is very important. It's kind of like the sheep, when sheep have fed, when sheep have grazed the green grass that the shepherds led them to and drinking of the clear waters. You know, Psalms 23 starts out, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's when the sheep enjoy what they've been eating, when they're chewing the cud, when they're digesting what they have been grazing on. And that's a, a picture of meditation. As we meditate, we are digesting what we have considered. The Bible is a very unique and special book, and it has to be meditated upon. So we find here in verse 18, one of the benefits of the Word of God. Here we find where David is praying. Now, if you notice earlier in verse 9, he refers to himself as a young man. He says, Whether shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed to the Word of God? And then we find in verse 17, I believe it is, he refers to himself as a servant. And in verse 19, as a stranger. So David here says, as a young man, as a servant, as a stranger. And these are all words that should apply to our lives. There is a time in all of our lives that we are or were a young person. And then 
we should always consider ourselves to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then never lose the fact that you are a stranger here in this world. If you're living a life that a Christian ought to live, you're going to be a stranger here in the world in which you live. A stranger and a pilgrim. As I've defined it many times, a stranger is somebody that's away from home and a, and a pilgrim is somebody that's on a journey. And that's the lives of God's people, especially those who try to enter into the pathway of discipleship. You live in a strange world and this world is going to think you're strange if you're walking the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ and not partaking of the things that the world enjoys doing so much. So we find here where David is praying a prayer. One of the 172 short prayers contained in Psalms 119. He says, Lord, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now, David is not praying here when he was in an unregenerate state. Obviously, David has been regenerated. He's been born of the Spirit of God. But yet, after being born of the Spirit of God, he is praying here for his eyes to be opened further. And he wouldn't be praying for his eyes to be opened further if he hadn't already had some insight into the Word of God to even know there are wondrous things in God's Word for us to be able to see. Now, man by nature doesn't have eyes to see. Man by nature, apart from the grace of God, is in a state of death and trespass and sin. He's totally depraved from top to bottom and inside out and outside in. And therefore, there are things he cannot do. Let's see what the Lord said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Nicodemus came to him by night. The Lord tells Nicodemus, he says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the things of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Lord made it very clear to be able to see the things of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, you must have had the new birth. You must have experienced the new birth. Except a man be born again, he cannot see. It doesn't matter how, how good you are explaining things, how good you are at teaching things. You can teach somebody, you can be the best teacher in all the world, be the best explainer in all the world, but it's not going to matter to somebody in an unregenerate state. He cannot see the things of the kingdom of heaven if he has not experienced the new birth. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John 8, 43, He said, He that's of God heareth God's word, but you hear them not because you're not of God. He's speaking to people and says, you don't have an ear to be able to hear. See, hearing and seeing is for the living, is not for the dead. He says, he that's of God heareth God's word, but he that heareth not is not of God. He then asks the question, why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my words. Why do you think the Lord ended so many of his sayings with expression? That him that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Apparently, everybody didn't have the kind of hearing ears that Jesus Christ had under consideration. You have to be born again to have a hearing ear. You have to be born again to have a seeing eye, you see. In, the, in, the, in Proverbs, Solomon says, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, even God hath given both of them. That's kind of an interesting statement to me. The hearing ear, well, what does a hear, ear do but hear, right? And, and what does eye do? What's the purpose of an eye but for to see? But the way he explains it here is telling me there is more than one type of eyesight and one, more than one type of hearing under consideration. The seeing eye and the hearing ear, even God, hath given both of them. So a man, unless he's born again, cannot see, cannot hear. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says the natural man, which means the unregenerated man, 
The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. And they'll always be foolishness unto him, no matter how sensible you try to make it to him. He's never going to see anything about the Word of God as anything but just foolishness. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. He's saying he cannot know them because they're spiritual discern. He cannot see, he cannot hear, he cannot know, he cannot understand. It's just all foolishness unto him. Psalms 14, 1, Psalms 53, 1. It says, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. It says, the carnal mind is enmity against God, not subject to the law of God. And they which are in the flesh cannot please God. I hope you notice a lot of the knots in, in those verses there. Cannot, understandeth not, seeth not, heareth not. These are all knots that belong to the unregenerate person. So until a person is born of the Spirit of God, he doesn't see anything wonderful about the Word of God to begin with. But after being born of the Spirit of God, we still need some assistance in understanding God's Word. Let's see how Paul wrote over here to the church at Ephesus in chapter 1, verses 17. In fact, when you look at verse 17, Ephesians chapter 1, it starts a sentence and doesn't end to the end of the chapter, verse 23. There's about seven verses here that all make up one general uh, uh, thrust of uh, thinking, you might say. And he says here, he's praying for the church at Ephesus, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory might give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He said, I'm praying for you here at Ephesus that the Lord would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The eyes, what? Of your understanding being enlightened. And the kind of sight I'm talking about here is equivalent to understanding what you're reading, you see. To have insight into it. So Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus to have that kind of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of the revelation of the knowledge of him, that your eyes of your understanding might be enlightened. You might know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in his children or in the saints. Now, he continues on all the way through verse 23 about that, but I just want those two verses to show you that Paul understood the importance of praying for understanding concerning the Word of God. So as you're reading the Scriptures this year, uh, beginning, if you had not already started, beginning tomorrow in Genesis 1-1, before you begin to read, just say a little prayer to the Lord. I say a little prayer, meaning like a short prayer to the Lord. Thank Him for His Word. Thank Him you have His Word. And then ask Him to bless you to understand His Word. See, the unregenerate man can read the Bible and understand it from historical perspective. Uh, he can understand facts and information and all that and store all that kind of stuff up. But to get the spiritual impact of it, he cannot do that. And he would only use it to, for conversation's sake, etc. It would not be very valuable and important to him. So it's important that our eyes be open. Now, the Lord specializes in opening eyes. We have a number of, of course, cases that we can refer to where the Lord simply opened the eye, literal physical eyes of people that were blind. You go to John chapter 9. And it's one of the longest chapters in the Gospels. And the Lord here gives us a story of the man that was born blind from his mother's womb. You know, from his, he was been blind ever since he came into this world here. And the Lord there at the pool of Siloam spit on the clay and made spittle and put on his eyes. And he went and washed the pool of Siloam 
and his sight was restored. And that was natural sight that he restored to him on that occasion. But a great miracle had been performed. And I love this chapter in so many ways because God gives this man the grace and the courage and the strength and the power to withstand an onslaught of questions and interrogations from the Pharisees and those who would not give credit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, he summed it up like this. And this is an important point, I believe. Because if you just believe your experience, it will, your experience will teach you what the doctrines of grace teach you in the Word of God if you just examine your experience with an open mind. Here's what he said. He said, whether this man be a sinner, I know not. They claim Jesus was a sinner because he opened the eyes of this man on the Sabbath day. Whether this man be a sinner or not, I know not. He said, but one thing I know, once, once I was blind, <laughs> now I see. He knew that. <laughs> and that was a lot to know, wasn't it? He said, I know I was once blind. He had never seen anything since he'd been born. Once I was once blind. He said, but now I see. He said, I know that. <laughs> you can't take that away from me. And you can't take your experience, somebody can take your experience away from you if you just hold on to it and just examine your own life, examine your own experience, you will know and you will understand that when God came to you, you were not looking for him. When God born you, the Spirit of God, it wasn't you crying, Lord, born me again of the Spirit of God. You could care less about being born of the Spirit of God. But being an object of God's love and one of God's children, an heir of promise, at God's own appointed time, he quickened you, made you alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. In doing that, he gave you then the ability, the faculty to have seeing eyes and hearing ears, understanding heart, to be able to read God's word and understand God's word. But at the same time, you need to pray on a regular basis. Lord, help me to understand. I want to know what your word teaches. I want to know the truth. Regardless of what I've been taught in the past, regardless of how I've been raised up, I, I want to know what the truth of your word is. So David's praying that kind of prayer. Now, the Lord, again, specializes in opening eyes. i just give you an example where he opened the eyes of a man who literally was blind. He gave him literally his natural eyesight back to him. If you go to the end of Mark chapter 10, there's two uh, blind beggars by the roadside. And Mark specializes, uh, uh, focuses on one. His name is Bartimaeus. Often I'm referred to him as blind Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus cried out to the Lord. He says, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. The Lord will ask him a question. He said, what will thou be that I do unto thee? Now the Lord knew why he cried out to him. He knew what his condition was. But he replied to the Lord. He says, I might receive my sight. He says, thy faith has made thee whole. Go and thou shalt see. And he said, from that point forward, his sight was given unto him. And Bartimaeus could see. The Lord displayed his great power. Enabling somebody to see that was blind. Now, look over here in the book of 2 Kings chapter 6. And I find the days of Elisha the prophet, they had a servant. And we find where the king of Syria had tried to ambush the king, but we find Elisha had been warning the king about the ambush uh, of the king of Syria. So he had it once and twice and more times than that. And finally, uh, he thinks somebody's a traitor in the camp. But his servants say, no, we're not a traitor here, but there's a man of God in the camp of Israel that tells the king everything you're thinking in your bedchamber. Everything you're thinking about when you're by yourself, he knows your thoughts and he's telling the king what your thoughts are. So he sends his army down there to get Elisha. And the servant looks out there and he sees this great army and he has great fear. He says, Alas, master, what shall we do? And we find where Elisha prayed for him. 
and he prayed that the Lord would open his eyes. Now, this man could see. He wasn't blind. He could see. But there was something out there that he was not seeing, that he needed to see. He saw the enemy. He saw the army of the enemy. He saw the multitude of the enemy. But there was something else out there that he wasn't seeing, that he needed to see. So Elisha the prophet prayed for him, and the Lord opened his eyes, and then he saw what Elisha wanted him to see. What did he see? He saw another army. He saw horses and chariots of fire in contrast to horses and chariots. The enemy had horses and chariots, but God's army was horses and chariots of fire, and they were between the enemy's army and Elisha to protect Elisha. The army, in other words, was round about Elisha. That's what the servant didn't see till his eyes were open. When his eyes were open, then he saw it. They were there all the time. Elisha knew all about it, but his servant couldn't see it. He wanted his servant to see it, you see. In Luke chapter 24, when the Lord, after he's been resurrected, he's walking the road to Emmaus, and there's two disciples, and he joins himself up with them. And the Bible says their eyes were holding. It doesn't mean they were blind. They had natural eyesight. They could see Jesus, but they couldn't recognize Jesus. They could see him, but they couldn't recognize him. And so they're talking to him, not knowing he's the very one they're talking about. Not knowing he's the center of their conversation. Not knowing he's a resurrected Christ. So they have a conversation. Finally, the Lord says unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe, ought not Christ to have suffered and entered to his glory. That's written in the prophets. They travel along a little bit further, and Jesus made like he would go on his way. But the Bible says they constrained him and got him to stop and come into their house. They sat down to eat a meal. And as he took the bread and the wine. Now he's the guest, but he takes charge here. We find where the Lord blesses the food, blesses the drink, blesses the meal. And then he vanishes out of their sight. And the Bible says, and their eyes were open. And here's what they said. Did not our hearts burn within us by the way while he talked to us by the way? Their hearts didn't just start burning right then. They started burning when they were walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, but their eyes were still holding. Their eyes had been arrested, so to speak. They could not see something. Though they had natural eyes, they could see the Lord Jesus Christ, but didn't have the kind of eyes that they had after this experience. It says their eyes were opened. And they recognized who he was then. But it took an experience of the Lord's grace for her eyes to be opened, you see. Even in the case of a man by the name of um, Balaam. Come over to Numbers chapter 22. And you find in the case of Balaam where he's a, a prophet that uh, the king of Balaam was trying to get Balaam to curse Israel. He saw the multitudes of Israel. He became to get, uh, concerned about it. So he tries to get Balaam to curse Israel. But Balaam will not curse Israel because God will not allow him to do so. And he says in the beginning, I can only do that which God allows me to do. If I'm... Uh, I can't curse them unless he says curse them. Right now, I'm blessing them. And so we find where Balak would not leave him alone. That's the way the devil works. He will not leave you alone. Satan will always be there. If he don't get you the first time around, he'll just circle around and come back at you again. He offers him rewards and all kind of things uh, to entice him, to allure him. So finally, we find where Balaam next morning got up and went with them, and God was angry about it because God had not given him the green light. He's riding upon an ass with those messengers that came from Balak. And that ass he's riding on sees an angel, but Balaam cannot see the angel. The ass could see something Balaam couldn't see. 
and the angel stood in the way and caused the animal to balk, so to speak. And this happens about three different times. Finally, he crushes Balaam's foot against a wall because uh, he couldn't get through it. And Balaam gets so mad and so angry, he's about ready to take his sword out and kill the animal. Then the Bible says, the Lord opened up Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel. Angels are all the time. The animal he's riding on could see it, but Balaam couldn't see it. To the Lord opened his eyes. So the Lord can open up our eyes naturally, physically, from being blind to seeing. But we need the Lord to open our eyes spiritually to see things we wouldn't see otherwise, you see. I like this verse over in uh, Hebrews eleven twenty seven concerning Moses. It says, By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, seeing he endured as seeing him that's invisible. He endured on what basis? He saw somebody invisible. He's talking about God, of course. He saw the invisible. He had some eyes to see something that others couldn't see. He saw the invisible. That gave him the strength and the power to endure. And that's why he, by faith, fled the land of Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Now, he's not talking about the first time he left Egypt. He fled that time because of fear. This is the second time he left Egypt. When he left Egypt the second time, he did not fear the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. David here is praying that his eyes might be open. Lord, open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now the first thing that's a wonder to me this morning, where there's wondrous things in the law of God, the law of God itself is a wonder. The Bible's special. The Bible's unique. The Bible's one of a kind. The word Bible comes from the Latin word biblios. It means book or books. And it contains 66 books. But as you read these 66 books, written by over 40 men over a span of about 1,500 years, you're going to notice miraculous uniformity. You're going to notice miraculous harmony. How can 40-some authors, of which most of them never met the other one, a few did. You know, John's a writer, Peter's a writer, they knew each other. Paul's a writer, they knew him. But none of them knew Moses, none of them knew David, none of them knew Solomon, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. They lived hundreds and hundreds of years apart. When the Bible first started being recorded until the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, about 1,500 years had gone by to the completion in John's gospel. Forty-some men over a span of 1,500 years wrote this book that's before me here this morning. And there's perfect harmony in it, and there's not a contradiction in the Word of God. When Paul tells Timothy to study the Bible, notice what he says about it. He says, study to show thyself approved unto God. God's the author of the Bible. He's the professor. You're the student. Timothy, you're the student. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman. It's, it's work to study the Bible. If you study the Bible like you need to, it's going to require some effort, require some work. In a minister of the gospel, that's some of his main work is reading and studying the Word of God. It takes time, it takes effort, uh, it takes a lot of work to do it. A workman need not be ashamed rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Now, I'm kidded every now and then by some here in this congregation this morning that will kid me every once in a while. Well, you only work one day of the week. Now, I can see the guilt on several faces here as I said, made that statement. 
You only work one day of the week. No, <laughs> this is the day I have off. This is the day I really enjoy what I've been working on all week long. Study to show thyself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 starts off the qualification of the minister. It says, if any man desire the office of the bishop, he desireth a good work. A good work. A workman need not be ashamed, right in inviting the word of truth. Notice he says it's truth, it's the word of truth, but it has to be right in inviting. That requires a lot of effort. You can study this Bible and what might be apparent contradictions, you study it properly, you'll find it where it will harmonize eventually when you have a proper understanding of what's under consideration in all the context. This is a wonderful book. It's a miraculous book. The writers of the New Testament uh, believed very strongly in the authenticity of the Old Testament. They believed very strongly that the Old Testament indeed was given by the inspiration of God and uh, was true in every sense of the word. Uh, notice uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 just for a moment. Paul says all scripture, and when he wrote that, he was talking about the Old Testament primarily, but then the scriptures he was recording himself as uh, a human writer, God being the author. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means God breathed, given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. They're all profitable. But they're only profitable, though, if you read it. It's only profitable if you understand it. It's only profitable if you apply it. If you let it sit on the coffee table gathering dust, it's not profitable for anything. All scripture is given the inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine. Doctrine is important in the Word of God. Somebody said, Well, I, 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 doctrine just confuses people. I, I'm, you know, I, I don't know about this doctrine. He says it's profitable for doctrine. Paul told Timothy, Speak, sound, speak those words which uh, are sound doctrine. It's proper doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It's a thorough furnisher unto all good works. And for the man of God to be perfect, that is be mature and complete, he needs an understanding of it. That comes by reading, by studying, by coming to the house of God on the sound of a gospel minister that can hopefully explain it to you. It's, it's amazing. This is a, a big book. It's amazing to me how many times I've preached over the years now, somebody come after the services, usually in the handshake, which we're not having right now, but usually in the handshake, and say, you know, I was just reading that last night. You know, that's been on my mind for the last several days. Now, I didn't know that, but the Lord knew that. The Lord knew it. How in the world uh, could I be speaking on something they just read the night before or was thinking about during the week? I don't know that. That's why I try to pray what the Lord would guide and direct me in and trying to preach and why I need your prayers concerning that on a regular, consistent basis. See over here in the book of Acts chapter 8, you've got a man that's referred to as the eunuch. And the eunuch has been to Jerusalem to worship. And he's heading home. Now, he lives in Ethiopia. He's got a long journey. He came a long ways. He's traveled a long ways under difficult circumstances, go from Ethiopia down up to Jerusalem to worship, and now he's heading back, and he's reading, he's riding in a chariot, reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And the Lord sends a preacher down there to him in his, in his providence by the name of Philip, and when Philip goes there to where he's riding in that chariot, he asks him the question, understandest what thou readest? He says, how can I accept some man guide me? Now, we see the man has got interest in the Word of God. He's been to worship. That shows he's been born in the Spirit of God. 
He, he's not asking how to get born again. He's already been born again. He wouldn't travel all those miles to worship to begin with. And on the way back, if he'd have just gone out of obligation, you might say, from a legal perspective, he wouldn't have been reading Isaiah chapter 53. Maybe the, the man in the synagogue spoke from that that day. I have no idea. But for some reason, he's got the scriptures with him. He's in Isaiah, what we refer to as Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. He says, how can I accept some man guide me? I need somebody to guide me through this. And so Philip beginning at the same scripture. And that's good advice and counsel for me. And for all preachers, it's when you're trying to answer a question, we need to go right to the place where the question is being asked from. Beginning the same scripture, he preached Christ unto him. And as he preached Christ unto him, they was traveling along and there was some water. And the unit says, here's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? So that tells me apparently when Philip preached to him, he preached not only the person work of the Lord and Jesus Christ, but he must have preached on the ordinance of baptism. He must have preached on the importance of baptism. He must have preached about how, how that baptism is keeping the command of God. He says, here's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? He says, thou believest all thine heart thou mayest. He says, I believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God. 1 John 5, 1 tells me that whoso believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You find me a believer, I find you a born again child of grace. You don't believe to get born, you believe because you are born. It's that simple. And so he took him down in the water and he baptized him. The Bible says the Spirit caught away Philip and the unit went on his way rejoicing. What a beautiful picture, how the gospel operates, how the gospel works, how discipleship, uh, you know, is, uh, is applied in life. Here the man needed some understanding, just like David praying here, Lord, open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. This law right here, this book is a wonderful book, a wondrous book, an unbelievable book. Give him the divine inspiration. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. The apostle Peter says, Holy men of God, uh, they, uh, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Spirit of God. For no scriptures of any private interpretation, but holy men of God were moved upon by the Spirit of God and the power of God to write the words of the Old Testament. Peter believed it, Paul believed it, John believed it, they all believed it. The Lord Jesus Christ gave authenticity to the Old Testament, being inspired and accurate. He referred to things in the Old Testament time and time again. There's over 300 direct quotations and over a thousand allusions in the New Testament to that which is written in the Old Testament. Abraham, whose life is covered in the um, book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is referred to 70, about 75 times in the New Testament. Moses is the same. They're both around 75 or so, one, two, three more than the other. Moses' life, of course, is covered in the book of Exodus. 75 times, around 75 times apiece, they are mentioned over here in the New Testament. These are real people, real characters, real individuals who live real lives. The Lord Jesus Christ, in Luke chapter 17, oh, about 20, verses 24, 25, right in there, he, says, he brings reference here to those in the days of Noah, the ark. He said, in the days of Noah. Well, where did the days of Noah come from? Genesis chapter 7. The Lord is saying what's written in Genesis chapter 7 took place. In the days of Noah. He says, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, giving in marriage, right up to the time that Noah went into the ark. And then judgment came. Then he says, in the days of Lot. 
They were eating. They were drinking. They were building. They were planting. They were buying and they were selling. Sounds like the world I'm living in. People out here today are doing what? Buying and selling and building and planting and eating and drinking, just carrying on, you know, like uh, they got uh, never going to leave this world. Never going to leave it. He said, until the day that Lot went out from Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to find this in Genesis 19. What happened when, when Lot went out from that day from Sodom and Gomorrah, fire, hell, and brimstone came down from heaven and destroyed those wicked cities. That's what happened. And then about three verses later, he says, remember Lot's wife, Genesis chapter 19. How would you like to be in the scripture like Lot's wife was? Remember when they went out of there and Lot and his wife, the commandment was don't look back. It's hard not to look back, isn't it? <laughs> it's just hard not to look back, but there's some things we don't need to look back on, my friends. And Lot's wife, he should have obeyed the commandment, would have went right on living as Lot's wife. But when she went, uh, went and looked back, God turned her right to a pillar of salt. The Lord is telling those under his hearing, all these things happened. All these things are true. So what did the Lord say about the scriptures? In John chapter 5, he says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. He says, That's what the Old Testament scripture is about. They testify of me. They testify of me. And that's why David could pray this prayer Lord, open thou mine eyes. I might behold wondrous things out of thy law, because there's wondrous things about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament as well as the New. John 10 35, the Lord says, The scripture cannot be broken. That just simply means that the scriptures have been preserved in such a manner and way that they link together as a great chain with no weak links to it. The Lord himself again referred to many things in the Old Testament and back there in the book of Genesis. In fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis is one of the most attacked portions of God's word that there is. But every single New Testament writer, every single one of them, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, all of them, referred at least one time or more to events that took place in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Over a hundred references in the, book of, in, the, in the New Testament are references to what took place in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, some of the most important information you're going to read in the Bible. And if you read starting tomorrow, you'll knock it out this week. The Lord himself referred to the burning bush. When those Sadducees came to him with the resurrection question. Remember he said, here's a woman who's been married uh, seven times, you know, according to the law, her first husband died, didn't have any children, so she married his brother. Died, didn't have any children, married his brother. A large family wound up marrying seven times. <laughs> Says, and the resurrection, whose husband is she going to have? And the Lord Jesus Christ said, in the resurrection, they neither married nor given in marriage. That's a fact. Put it down. In the resurrection, there's not going to be families like we have here on the earth. God established the family of this earth for our benefit, for our welfare, for order, stability, etc., etc. But in heaven, there's one family, one eternal family, a family out of every nation, kindred tongue of people upon the face of this earth. We're all brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, there's not going to be anybody missing in that family. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Whereas the angels of heaven, angels do not marry, angels do not reproduce. 
Angels do not have children. So many things said about angels that's so inaccurate, so untruthful. He says, have you not read? When the Lord said, have you not read? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Have you not read? When God appeared unto Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in a burning bush, a voice came out of that burning bush and told Moses, take his shoes off of the ground you stand on this holy ground. And he used that experience to prove to them that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A big difference. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob way back then, wasn't he? But he was still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they died hundreds and hundreds of years after the Lord Jesus Christ makes it, before Jesus Christ made this statement here. But he was just as much the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when he spoke those words as he was, my friends, when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living back in the days of Genesis. He referred to that. He said that actually happened. That actually happened. The Lord referred to Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness in John chapter 3. He said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's saying, I'm going to be lifted up just like Moses lifted up that serpent. Serpent, serpent, excuse me. And if Moses didn't lift up a serpent, the Lord Jesus Christ was not lifted up. That's putting, a, that's, uh, putting validity on it, isn't it? Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You go back and study that story in Numbers, uh, in the book of Numbers. You're going to find where Israel is sinned and God sent fiery serpents as judgment upon them and everyone that was bitten, they died. And they cried out and they told Moses to build a, or erect a brazen serpent and put the brazen serpent there and everyone looked upon that brazen serpent was healed and they lived. He says, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up from this earth. And by his resurrection, my friends, from his death, he assured the salvation of all the Lord's people, all the elect family of God. The Lord refers to that. He said that took place. Oh, that took place. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ makes reference to a miracle, one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. If you want to rank them in great or less, you know, from the least to the greatest, I don't think in one sense you can do that. But anyway, you go back there to Exodus chapter 16, or but John chapter 6, the Jewish people ask him the question, about him being the bread of heaven, bread of uh, life that came down from heaven. It says, Moses gave us that manna in the wilderness. Remember that manna was a special meal. You remember that? How God fed them uh, with manna from on high, something they'd never had before, and nobody, I don't think, has ever had since, once it stopped back in that day. And the instructions was given unto them how they were to go out and gather a certain amount each day for the first five days. On day number six, they was to gather twice that much, gather nothing on day number seven. As you might expect, some of them didn't do that. <laughs> some of them didn't gather twice as much on day number six. They can, I just go out on day number seven. We on day number seven, they look, nothing there. Nothing there. God always means what he says and always says what he means. The Lord referred to that. He says, they ate that man and died. But I'm the bread of life. Whosoever eateth this bread and drinketh this of my blood, he shall never die. Jesus Christ came to give eternal life, not just to sustain the life that Israelites had there in the wilderness, you see. 
He referred to all that. So let's get back to David's request. Lord, open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now what does the word wondrous mean? Obviously, it's part of the word wonder. It means that which you marvel at, that which is out of the ordinary, that which is miraculous. It has reference to miracles. Now, when David wrote this in Psalms 119, he had just a small portion of the Bible that we have today. He had the first five books of Moses. That's mainly what he had, maybe a few other books in addition to that. But he says, in those books there's wondrous things. Lord, open mine eyes and I might see them. Well, you don't have to start reading far. In Genesis 1, 1 to get you started. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's pretty wonderful, isn't it? It's pretty wonderful to know that I'm here by creation, to know there is a creator God, and we, what we see and what, all the blessings of this life are given to us because we believe that God is the God of creation, do we not? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was out form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light and there was light. That was marvelous when you think about it. You know, there's a lot of definitions. Uh, well, a lot of verses rather that uh, speak about the creation of God that I like. And uh, Jeremiah and Nehemiah are two of them. In ne Jeremiah 10 and 12, uh, Jeremiah speaking to the Lord says, Thou hast made the earth by thy power. Thou hast established the world by thine understanding. Thou hast stretched out the heavens, my friends, like a curtain by thy discretion. You see the picture that painted there? He's just stretched the heavens out. He repeats that in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 15. And you come to the book of Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. When Nehemiah is being blessed to complete the rebuilding of the wall that was destroyed in the Babylonian captivity, Nehemiah said, O oh Lord, uh, he says, uh, Thou art the Lord alone, and Thou hast created the heaven and the heaven of heavens and all things therein and the earth, and all things that are therein, and the seas, and all things that are therein. And he says, Thou hast preserved them, and they shall worship thee, O Lord. Do you notice that last part? They, his creation, shall worship him. So what has happened for 6,000 years? His creation has worshipped that. Men have worshipped the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and everything else God's created down through the ages. When he says they worship God. We're to worship God, brethren. <laughs> we're not to worship self. We're not to worship each other. We're not to worship the word of God. We're not to worship the church of God. We're not to worship God, the blessings God gives us. We're to worship the creator of all things. And the blessings, my friends, that come from the hand of this wonderful God. That's who we're to worship. God Almighty. God Almighty. Open thou mine eyes. I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. The word wonder was used to describe all the plagues of Egypt when God brought them out. The word wonder is used in Acts 2.22 concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, a man approved of God by miracles and wonders and signs among you, the apostle Peter said. It's used to describe the works of Christ and the works of the apostles, the miracles that was performed. The word wonder, it means to marvel at. I'm telling you, this book is just full of them. <laughs> it's just full of them, starting in Genesis, working its way all the way through the 66 books of the Bible. It's just filled with wonders. Every miracle you read, uh, it's a great wonder. Oh, David could have uh, had a lot to wonder at. Could he not? 
when he studied how Israel came out from the land of Egypt, those ten wonders that God performed, and how God opened up the Red Sea and brought them through the Red Sea, how God sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness, how he brought that water right out of the rock, how he brought manna down from on high and took care of them, how they had shoes and didn't wear out in 40 years and clothes didn't wear out in 40 years. <laughs> they can make clothes that way today if they would, but they don't want them to last that long. You remember when they used to make refrigerators and, and freezers that would last 40 years or more? My dad had a freezer that was between 40 and 50 years old. But they make them now purposely where they won't last over 10. I don't think I have to explain to you why, do I? <laughs> they want you to be a recurring customer. <laughs> God gave them shoes, didn't wear out. That's amazing. I'm telling you, it's amazing. That's a wonder. You can just ponder on that all day long, could you not? <laughs> and David had that to, to consider. But you know, David was a wonder. In Psalm 71, he says, I'm a wonder unto many. I look at the life of David. He is a wonder, is he not? He's just a marvel. Had that little boy as a teenager watching over his father's sheep on the, you know, the hillsides of Bethlehem. And a bear came, and he slew the bear, and a lion came, he slew the bear. He didn't have a gun to shoot him with. He just had his sling, brother. But he did not allow that bear and that lion to get one lamb out of that flock. A beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who destroyed the devil himself. and will never allow the devil to take one little lamb out of his hand. We believe in the preservation of the saints, the eternal security of the, of the people of God. Old David was a wonder. But I'm going to tell you, I, I don't think they wondered at him uh, that that it, near as much as they did in First Samuel chapter seventeen. I was thinking about this this morning when I was about four thirty in the morning. I usually I uh, had to get up about one time during the night, and I get back to bed, try to get to sleep. I try to do a lot of wondering. <laughs> I try to do a lot of consideration and thinking about some things that's on my mind. And I was thinking about it this morning at four thirty in the morning when David said, "I'm a wonder unto many." When he went out to fight Goliath, can you just get the scene, if you will? Here's a teenage boy, probably about 5'8", 5'10", in height and stature, and he's going to go out and do battle against a giant Goliath that's over around uh, between 9 and 10 feet tall. No, it's Goliath's about twice the size of David. Can you imagine what was going through the minds of the armies of Israel? Oh, what a mismatch this is. This won't take long at all. And the challenge was, if we lose, we got to be servants to the enemy. And little David's going out there. And he didn't have anything but a sling and five smooth stones in his pouch. And that giant Goliath has got a sword. He's got a spear. He's got a shield. He's an experienced warrior and all these things. Well, this won't take long. And they was right. It didn't take long. <laughs> oh, it didn't take long. Uh, I'm sure they probably couldn't hardly bear the sight. You reckon, just think about it, if you were there and you see the little boy and Saul himself, who was a man, shoulders above all other men, would not go out and fight. The captains would not go out and fight. Here comes little David along. He says, is there not a cause? He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine giant that's defied the very armies of God? He said, I'll go. And all he took with him was his, was his staff and his little script where he put the, a bag to put things in. He put five smooth stones in it and took the sling that he was so familiar with that he used for the bear and the lion. And now he goes out to battle against the giant and they meet out there where everybody can see. 
David takes one stone out and puts it in the sling and lets it fly. And through the providence of God, the stone flew straight to the forehead of the giant and down he went. Can you imagine the gasp? They couldn't believe their eyes. You know they didn't. I, I, I can't believe what I just saw. The giant's laying flat on the ground. David's up there with his foot on his chest, my friends, and his hand in the air and try up. David says, I'm a wonder unto many. But I closed this morning. Should have allowed more time for this. It's not as easy as it looks like. And over in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, the writer talks about somebody coming about 700 years after this. He says, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. That's the first thing, listen to me. His name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. The word wonderful means full of wonder. Uh, you know, that's what the word wondrous, wondrous things out of that law. That which is wondrous comes from wonderful, which means full of wonder. If it's full of wonder and wonderful, it makes it wondrous. And we find where he said, open thine eyes, I might see wondrous things out of that law. And when I begin to study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, where do you start? I mean, where do you start talking about the wonderful things? Where do you start about the wondrous things? Because it's all wondrous from his incarnation, my friends, when he's incarnated in the womb of a virgin and the birth that he came forth in this world and how he lived his private life up to the age of 30 and at the age of 12, my friends, he's mystifying the doctors and the lawyers. What a wonder that he was. And then he started his ministry at the age of 30 and all the miracles he performed. He was a wonder, my friends, uh, as he was God manifest in the flesh, all God and all man, humanity and divinity. Oh, what a wonder. What a wonder he was. No wonder his name is called Wonderful. I want to sing him 606, Brother Junior. How wonderful he was. His wonderful love, his wonderful grace. Oh, I, uh, I have to say this for another time. Uh, it's too wonderful to get into, not to get into adequately. I'm telling you, the man lived the wonderful life so that you can live with God in glory one day. Oh, the miracles, his sufferings, his, his, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, uh, his ascension into glory, my friends. Uh, he Mr. Wonderful from beginning to end, right? No wonder his name is called Wonderful. We'll choose him 606 if I got the right one. What is it, Brother Junior? That's it. So we sing this hymn here, the opportunity for anyone to unite with the church is certainly granted to you.